You're listening to a podcast by Mission Field USA, a church planting initiative of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. For more information and resources, visit lcms.org slash church planting. LCMS Mission Field USA podcast listeners. I'm Pastor Steve Shave, LCMS Director of Church Planting, and with me today is my co-host, as always, the Reverend Dr. Mark Larson. Hello, Mark. Hello, Steve. Hello, everyone. It's good to have everyone with us today. We have some special guests with us to talk today about addiction and substance use disorder. Uh, Our participants today are the Reverend Dr. Dennis Goff, who is Director of Ministry Program for the Lutheran Foundation in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Hello, Dennis. Hello. We also have with us Tom Allman, who is the Vice President of Addiction Services for Park Center in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Hello, Tom. Hello. And finally, our participant with us today is Rachel Blakeman, and she serves as the Community Research Institute Director for Purdue University, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome, Rachel. Greetings. Thank you. And it might seem like an interesting topic for us as we are talking about church planting and our topic today being about addiction. Our previous podcast was about ethnic groups and multi-ethnic ministry uh, as it relates to a community that has a population of people of many ethnicities and how we do outreach in terms of starting a new mission. Uh, So when we talk about addiction and substance use, uh, it's a little bit more hidden oftentimes, unless you are perhaps serving in the inner city and there's a homeless population um, where it's uh, evident that you have a, a strong population of people suffering from addiction. But I do think it is very fair to say that uh, addiction might be hidden, but certainly almost all of our families in the United States have in one way or another been affected by addiction. So whether it is outreach to those in your community who are in recovery, or if it is to families uh, who are joining your core group of your church plant, um, there is certainly ministry that can be done. So we're very thankful for our participants who are with us today to talk about how do we serve in mercy to those who are least and lost and those who are suffering from addiction and from family members too uh, that are also part of this recovery. So to get us started, uh, we're going to ask our participants if they could just give us kind of a a working definition, a subject definition for what it means to uh, talk about addiction and substance use disorder. Uh, This is Tom. I think it's important to to start out with a a national scope first. Um, The American Society of Addiction Medicine is a body, a national body of, of medical professionals that really views addiction as a disease. Um, and that is the, the vantage point that we'll have uh, primarily. But we'll grow the definition as we talk here today. Um, but I thought it would be relevant to actually give you the short definition of what the American Society of Addiction Medicine says that addiction is. Addiction is a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, related circuitry. Dysfunction in these circuits leads to char- characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. This is reflected in an individual uh, pathologically pursuing reward and relief by substance use and other behaviors. I'm gonna stop there for a minute, we'll, I'll add to that, but essentially it's the behavioral manifestations that 
we, um, whether we're in the treating profession or the faith community or uh, whatnot, see. It's the behavioral manifestations. It's the, it's the, um, the pursuits towards the substances that they use that sometimes lead them down a very dark and lonely path. That's fair enough. And for us, I guess, in the faith-based organizations, um, as you had pointed out, this is something that affects the mind, body, and soul, and that is how we show mercy uh, to those who are in need, um, to give them uh, their dignity and to realize our suffering and brokenness uh, in body and mind and soul. And so certainly uh, sounds like a good working definition for us to start with. Any other other discussions that you guys have for us about this definition of what it means? Sure. I think one of the things, this is Rachel, and we've done some work here with the Lutheran Foundation and clergy locally. And what we've learned from clergy especially, but the community in general, is that substance use disorder is often perceived not as a disease, but as a moral failure. Mm -hmm. That if you could just simply be a better person, Mm -hmm. the issue would resolve itself. But that's actually not a full understanding of what it is. Tom brought up the idea that it's a true disease. And so if we think of diseases such as chronic diseases such as high blood pressure or diabetes, we don't have a moral component to it. We have behavioral components to it. But how do we show mercy to the folks who have those diseases? And how do we show mercy to the folks who are experiencing substance use disorder? I think that's a key thing is if you can adjust the the mindset that you bring to this this situation, it helps you to frame how you're going to respond as a church, as a person of faith. Sure, and I think those of us who have not dealt with addiction don't seem to understand just the all-consuming nature that addiction can take, um, and it is difficult, especially for family members, to to lose lost ones to addiction, that they see this all-consuming uh, presence of this addiction. But as you pointed out, you know, as we care for people uh, in the body that have heart disease or they have mental illness, which affects the brain, you know, this is just another opportunity for us to give them that unconditional love uh, that God shows to us and to understand the, the bodily component of this that is so, so strong uh, in terms of how it can be overwhelming. So appreciate that as well. Uh, did you have anything to tell us about the, the stigma then and the shaming that might go along with us understanding this disease as not being a moral failure? So this is Tom. I just wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, it's a disease, but it's important to recognize it, that it's also a shame-based illness. Hmm. Um, in, in having some conversation as we prepared for this uh, podcast, kind of talking about the behaviors that I mentioned, the behavioral manifestations, things that people do that they look back and they feel bad or guilty about. When you think about the cycle of addiction, it's, it's, a, it's a roller coaster ride. And the path to recovery is a long one for most. And, and there's ups and downs as there is in life, period. But when it comes to the cycle of addiction, a person could be on the path of recovery and, and then they take a turn mm-hmm. and they feel bad for that turn. And that turn then leads them into more use. The actual relapse of the, with a substance doesn't occur at the actual point of use. The actual relapse occurs well before then, mm. um, when the thoughts and the cognitions that people are having in silence. Um, people are sitting in the pews are having these, these thoughts um, in silence. Um, and then they, they build upon those thoughts, and they actually end up using and relapse, the actual use itself. So it's important, it's important to recognize that shame-based component 
that we can, if we can take down the wall of, of, of the stigma associated with this disease, um, people might be more welcome to, to be open about their, their using patterns. Excellent. And as the church, obviously, we, we deal with the idea of guilt, um, of, of true uh, contrition for uh, bad behaviors. And so we obviously bring forgiveness, uh, you know, for anyone that does something uh, that brings them guilt. But as you said, it was interesting. I actually was invited by the U.S. Surgeon General to sit on a panel for the Health and Human Services Department on the opioid epidemic. It was a very specific topic. It was about um, getting past the stigma that people have with their addictions and giving them a sense of hope and where the faith-based organizations fit in with that. Because what the Surgeon General had pointed out is that for most people, this is a pipe dream for them to to ever find full recovery. Their families have pretty much alienated them. And at the same time, there really isn't a path forward, especially when it comes to being self-sufficient and getting back to work. There's so many obstacles that stand in the way. So he actually spoke of his own brother uh, in terms of addiction because he wanted to make it very clear that one of the first steps that we uh, as a society need to take in regards to this is getting past the stigma. So he wanted to talk about his own personal family uh, dynamics and how important it is for us, uh, again, that unconditional love, uh, that we can be those who break down the stigma for people who need our help. So I, I think that's very important as you as you bring up the idea of guilt and also for us to to not want to add to this stigma. So with that said, um, what suggestions do you have for us in terms of having the, the right terminology, using the right kind of language, that it doesn't add to the stigma of addiction? I'd like to, I'd like, I'd like to tee it up a little bit sure. and turn it over to um, Dr. Nora Volko is the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Um, she has been widely quoted as referring to addiction as a treatable and curable disease. Hmm. And one of the things that I think it's important to point out that when we talk about the behavioral manifestations, I mentioned that several times so far, we often label that as bad behavior. I think even yourself, Steve, I heard you say that. And I think it's important to recognize that when we quantify behavior as bad or good, we are, we are unintentionally labeling. And so we want, we want to talk about using destigmatizing language. And I think Rachel does a great job of talking about that. Great. Yeah, so the words that we choose can actually help people enter treatment and move forward in their healing, and the words we choose can actually create walls, barriers, obstacles, and discourage people from finding the, the services that they need. So one of the things we like to use is what we call person-first language. And so if you're familiar with the disability community, they've actually been probably the strongest advocates of you lead with the person and you follow with the condition. So it's a person who uses a wheelchair, not a wheelchair user. Hmm. For this context, it's a person with substance use disorder. You'll hear addiction continue to be used, but there's a movement towards calling it substance use disorder. So we want to call it with that. We want to avoid words like addict or junkie and because that really then creates shame and stigma. We want to move away from the language of clean and dirty mm, sure. into language such as currently using or not using. 
somebody who's in long-term recovery is a positive thing. So the words that we choose, and I'd like to remind your listeners that the choice, the change in your own personal language takes some time. So if you try doing that next Sunday and you find the wrong words coming out of your mouth, keep talking, mm-hmm. because I know it took me a long time when I started this project to, to really be able to use the, the appropriate language up front. But I think that that really helps us as community leaders, as people of faith, to be able to talk about this in a way that changes the dialogue within our faith communities and our churches, that then sort of gives some guidance and some leadership. And the language that we use matters. We've got some folks here that I work with who use the wrong words. I've mentioned it to them. I'll keep mentioning it to them until I don't have to anymore. (laughs) But I think it's an important thing to bring up and it's a small, easy move okay. that really shows leadership on behalf of clergy. And it's enough. important to add, um, you know, in terms of addiction, one of the other pieces of the definition of addiction is that, you know, that it's chronic and that it's filled with relapse and that you can go into remission. Um, similar to cancer, um, when, we have, when we have lapses and relapses, those moments are shame-provoking moments in all spheres of a person's life. Mm-hmm. And just talking from a, a, a treatment perspective, typically when someone tests negative or positive rather for a substance, in the treatment world they'll call that testing dirty, as Rachel alluded to. Okay. But if you can imagine kind of what that does in terms of provoking shame. So the very thing that helps perpetuate the cycle of addiction, along with the brain chemistry of course, we are unintentionally doing in a mainstream community. Okay. And Steve, I think that that's one of the that point suggests one of the roles that the church has. Um, you know, in terms of our identification in the church, our identity is with Christ. Our identity is not in some diagnosis. It's not in a disability that we have. It's not in some decision that we have made. But our identity, we talk about this all the time in the church, that we are first and foremost a child of God, a son and daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, I think that uh, person-first language really does tie in with the way the church wants to talk to people and talk about people who are dealing with this issue as well as any other issue that uh, we struggle with in life. Certainly. That was one of the things that I was also thinking of. So when I was talking about bad behavior, um, I see the the person that comes into the pastor's office. I mean, I've actually seen this working in the inner city, but um, they they come with guilt and baggage, and they feel that their addiction um, is there something that that they need to change in their own self talk when when they're coming and they're talking about my my behavior has been harmful, my behavior has been hurtful not only to me but to my family, and that's that's where their sense of guilt comes from. Is there uh, a way that we redirect their own talk in terms of how we find our identity uh, as God's people. So, you know, one of the things that, that is not in the definition that ACM provides is that unlike a lot of diseases, addiction is an incredibly selfish, selfish disease, hmm. meaning that all focus is genu- genuinely, typically, inward. Um, have you ever heard of the attitude of gratitude? Yeah. We just kind of went through that with Thanksgiving, right? And, sure. And, and be thankful for our blessings and, and things of that nature. With, with active addiction, 
the tendency is to be very inward focused, very, very much focused on your own gratification. Okay. It's not about others. It's not about how can I be a best friend or a best husband or wife. It's, it's about how can I satisfy the cravings my brain is requiring right now to be filled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a void that's constantly being filled, and it's a very hopeless state of mind. And so when they go through, when you're going through that cycle like that, um, to get the focus away from inward focus to more of an outward focus and really surrendering. And when Pastor Goff talks about, you know, being a child of God and that being our identity, mm-hmm. there's there's very much that component. Now, generally, generally from a from a you know a traditional twelve step type approach, generally it's higher power, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily say God might be your higher power, but there's some higher power. And if you identify it as God, then, then so be it. But in general, spirituality is, is one element that is so lacking um, for the person sure. that is obviously a place uh, for the church to, to be a, of assistance. Okay. And maybe one of the reasons why it's so lacking is that intentionally, unintentionally, the church has kind of exhibited or dis- communicated uh, messages of judgment and messages of shame and messages of um, poor choices, bad decisions, as opposed to the opportunities that the church has to be less judging, affirming, supportive, hope-giving. And certainly all of those things are, are hallmarks of the church to be affirming, hope-giving, but that's not always what the person is sensing from the church as they're dealing with this. Sure. So it gives the opportunity for the church, church leaders, congregation members, clergy, to be thinking about how are we coming across to people who are struggling. Understood. Goes back to the idea of disease versus moral failure. How right. can we how can we look at this from a disease <clears throat> model? and then approach it with the hope that there is treatment and recovery available and it can be successful. I think sometimes people don't realize that treatment is available and it can be successful because you often only hear the heartbreaking stories. The people who've had positive experiences may not be as vocal about what can happen. Right. Yes, and um, I think it's good for us, obviously, where the, the Lutheran church and, you know, we always think of these terms and, and, and the right distinction between the law and the gospel and truly being kind of the physician of the soul and not to just assume that uh, somebody is willfully um, harming others or themselves. And uh, so we, we definitely always think from that, that lens of uh, we want to make sure that we're properly losing, using both God's law and his gospel. It seems to me like maybe the uh, law has already been preached to this person, when, mm-hmm. and maybe they don't need more shame. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like at a funeral, you know. Yeah, good you, point. you got the a laws, body, laws that's probably enough law. Spoken, so. yeah. yeah. Good point. Well, let's uh, move ahead then with the uh, idea of treatment and recovery. Um, what thoughts do you have for us on, on treatment and recovery for those uh, who are suffering from addiction and substance use disorder? Well, I think, I think one of the things I'd like to, to start with is, is that when we talk about the cycle of addiction, so um, it's important to know that through the cycle of addiction, you, you, have, you have the actual thoughts of use, the cravings, the thoughts of using, the action, the act of actually using. At each step in the cycle, there are exits. There's a potential exit. 
And you know, to lend, to, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm staring at um, a piece of art that has a has an open hand. I can only see, assume it's God's hand coming out of a cloud. Mm-hmm. And in that exit strategy, can the person take that hand? You know, and and will will they be willing to accept the help? And I think that you know, opinion. God's given us all talents and abilities and treasures, and 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 so we're all called to serve in some fashion and, and helping in the helping profession. And so. You know, I think this is one of those things where, in the using cycle, will they take that help? And uh, I think I'd like to see what you. Yeah, and I think also the idea that we want to look at treatment and recovery. So we look at treatment as being the clinical care mm-hmm. that they're receiving. They're seeing a therapist. They may be being prescribed a medication-assisted treatment during that time. So there's active clinical care that they're receiving during treatment. Recovery may happen after the treatment. It may happen in concurrence with the treatment. Recovery is the long haul. So it's putting your life back together. It may be creating a new version of yourself. So often recovery may involve things such as repairing relationships with families. For some, if there was somebody who lost custody of a child, they may be looking to get custody back through the courts. It may be something about returning to full-time employment or going to full-time employment for the first time. But what we want this to be, and this is a real movement in the treatment and recovery field, is what we're calling patient-centered services. So that that way the patient chooses what this path looks like. So clearly abstinence is likely going to be part of that, to not be in use. But really then, what does that look? Abstinence is only one part of it. We're really trying to help them rebuild their lives in their entirety. And obviously, one of those things is going to be a spiritual component for many people. And so how can the church come alongside and be part of that? Sure. Yeah, I think um, from what I've seen out there in the the field, it's typically not um, the church's role to be involved in that clinical part, the treatment part. But I have seen multiple occasions where the recovery side, where somebody immediately comes out of a treatment center and then they find a faith-based organization that has a ministry uh, with the recovery. So can you talk a little bit more about maybe some of the options that are there for that and what what the role of the church and faith community might be in recovery? I guess one way to to address this, Steve, would be um, I think one of the roles of of the church is identifying what some of the treatment services might be in the community where you're living. Mm -hmm. You know, as a parish pastor, when I come into a new community, I don't necessarily need to research who all the cancer doctors are in the community. People who are diagnosed with cancer are going to find those. Mm -hmm. But the majority of the time when a family is dealing with the issue of addiction, substance use disorder, or a family member is struggling with that, usually the question is, I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn to. I don't know the resources. And I think, as I think now, and, and not being a current parish pastor, as I think now, if I was going into a parish, one of the things that I'd want to research early on is, what are some of those services? Who are the, the community partners, uh, faith-based or non-faith-based, just so I have a starting point when that happens for somebody in my congregation and and get to know some of the leaders of those organizations a little bit so that I do have a point of referral. I think that, I mean, we talk sometimes in some of the things that we do about the difference between a cold handoff and a warm handoff. Hmm. 
And all too often, it's easy to just say, well, here's a phone number of a service that I'm aware of. But when it comes to something like this, we know what a challenge it is for people to actually take that step to go to somebody and say, I need help. So what's probably helpful is if I would have established a relationship with some treatment uh, providers and, and leaders of those organizations so that I can literally say to the person sitting in my office, you and I are going to go together, and there's a warm handoff to that person. Okay. Uh, but I think it starts by learning what some of those organizations are all about. Gotcha. And I also think uh, from my own observations um, that this is, uh, as you said, it's not – it's, it's a collaboration. It's, as, as you guys have pointed out, it's multidisciplinary in its approach. So um, it's, it's a handoff. But at the same time, I've also seen where it's giving someone kind of a structured life. So they come out of the recovery center. Um, I'm sorry, the treatment center. They go for recovery, and they're given a place that gives them transitional housing, that gives them kind of uh, a structure that we're going to have uh, dinner at this time, and we're going to work work in our garden on this time, and we're going to have a Bible study at this time. You also need to go to this meeting at this time. You also have to make sure you're checking in with your mental health provider. And so they kind of offer that uh, structure to help the person through the entire recovery process and be kind of a guiding force. Does that sound right, that this is you know not going to be one, one organization, but it's going to require a lot of kind of collaboration? Absolutely. And I think also when we look at it of that holistic approach, so that that way we're not just looking at, say, job training skills. We're not just looking at it from finding secure and safe housing. We're looking at it across the disciplines. And I think that I've got to give a lot of credit to the folks who are working on the front lines of this, recognizing the needs. We're seeing a lot of communities that are becoming very collaborative. The community that you're serving may be in different states of that, and we'll talk about that a little more later if we have some time for it. But hopefully folks are working together so that that way they're connecting to a range of services and finding what that person needs. Again, it's it's patient-centered. So they may be ready to re-enter the workforce full-time. They don't need assistance with that, but they need to help rebuilding those relationships with their family members. Maybe it's the, the complete opposite. It really depends on the patient, and they're the one driving the, the bus on this one. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, from a, Go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead, please. I was just going to say, you know, in, in terms of, you know, states are obviously different, but in the state of Indiana we have a coordinating council and in each county. Um, and they're often referred to as drug-free Indiana, um, Adams County, for example, or mm-hmm. Drug and Alcohol Consortium of Allen County. Um, those are great resources if you're unclear on who your providers are in your immediate community. I wanted to make sure that I highlighted um, uh, the Substance Abuse Mental Substance Abuse Mental Health uh, Administration, SAMHSA, and their website, the find, findtreatment.samhsa.gov. Um, that's a simple database that many uh, credible uh, organizations that provide behavioral health services that uh, treat addiction um, are, are found in, um, and they're often pretty credible, um, and uh, so that's a, that's a resource. Great. Steve, I, I can also share with you a resource that, and maybe you want to give a, a link to this, but the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has a Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. And they have uh, developed what they call the Opioid Epidemic Practical Toolkit, 
helping faith-based and community leaders bring hope and healing to our communities. And regardless of where somebody is located, it could be a resource that they at least begin to get some education about, a little, learn a little bit more about the, the disorder, learn what some of the helpful tools might be in their local community. It would lead them to some resources that they could get additional information for family members who have somebody that's struggling with this issue. So it's, it's not that there aren't resources out there. Mm -hmm. It's just identifying where they are. How do we make those connections? Very good. And I hate not to toot my own horn, but I actually <laughs> I got to represent the LCMS uh, in that making of the toolkit. And w one of the things that I thought was interesting is, uh, as we're all talking about the the collaboration part of that, it just and as you've already pointed out, it just depends on where are the gaps. And so one of the reasons that we were uh, at the table talking about this is, as we said, sometimes the transaction trans transitional housing part is not there, so there's a gap, or sometimes it might be that the employment part is an issue. So there's you know somebody that's in recovery, but they don't have any opportunity to find work. And so sometimes we've seen social enterprises being used for that particular reason, to give someone that second chance so that they can get back into the, the workforce and then they can find even better jobs uh, being back in the workforce through that workforce development. But as you have pointed out, and wisely so, that that toolkit allows you to help identify what what are some of the gaps that faith-based organizations can participate in. And I think it's kind of important, too, as you guys have also mentioned, but especially when you're doing these kind of ministries, um, that we don't have an unrealistic expectation. Obviously, most of what we're talking about here in terms of addiction is drug use, and yet at the same time, we all have <laughs> our weakness, and, and none of us can say that, well, uh, whatever that might be, my recovery from that had this perfect linear path. We all relapse back into these things uh, that, you know, as Paul says, the what I don't want to do, I keep doing the things I don't, you know, should be doing, I'm not doing. Um, and so even as volunteers that want to serve in this important ministry, we need to look inside ourselves and realize that there, there isn't going to be this perfect linear path that we're going to set people on. And we do have to get into the muck and the mire of people's lives. And we need to be in it for the long haul and not to, uh, not to give up on people because certainly God has not given up on us uh, regardless. I think it's also important for your listeners to understand that not everybody enters inpatient treatment, so not everybody has to leave their, their families for a month, sure. that outpatient treatment can be very successful uh, for those who are thinking, I can't leave my children for, for 30 days, I can't go away. You don't have to. You can get treatment services outpatient very successfully. Do you want to talk about that, Tom? Just, just in brief, you know, outpatient treatment uh, in today's world is, is way different than it was decades ago. Um, while the psychodynamic approach, people think of uh, Freud, for example, hmm. you know, that uh, you know, the people envision uh, laying on the couch talking to a therapist for you know months on end. You know, those days are, those things still exist, those environments still exist, but that's not mainstream uh, outpatient treatment nowadays. Generally, generally treatment is very brief. Um, it's very, uh, very accommodating in, in a lot of places, uh, services during the day, services in the evening. Um, it's very much mo motivation, motivation-based, cognitive-based, really, really talking about how to help people 
restore or uh, remember who they were and, and learning or, or relearning uh, what they once knew or maybe never did know but have the ability to. And so it's very brief. Um, it does not have to be months on end. And to Rachel's point, um, you don't necessarily have to leave home to, uh, to get treatment. Well, that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. We're going to talk a little bit, too, about the, the cyclical aspect of this. And if you wouldn't mind giving us a, a little bit on the impact that this has on families and the family dynamic that sometimes leads into these uh, addictions. So from a systems perspective, um, no matter who in, in the family is, is impacted by substance use, um, no one, let me just start, let me say this, addiction does not discriminate. Yeah. You know, it is, it, is not, it is not to say if you are high income, low income, homeless, or, or uh, firmly placed into a home, basically it can be anybody that you are interacting with. You know, one, it used to be that one in three people, um, one in three people actually knew someone or was using a substance, of a, a mood-altering substance. Number is generally now one and two. Mm -hmm. um, age of first use is, used to be 12. Now it's roughly around 10. So it does not discriminate. So it's important to kind of really talk about that. Sure. Um, and and when it, when I, so when I say that, if you can imagine that this roller coaster ride of addiction, addic addiction, one of the parts of the definition I have not read yet is that it's progressive, mm. meaning that it can potentially be fatal. Um, you have to get to that point, and unfortunately, we've seen with the opioid epidemic, you know, the, a lot of the unintentional drug poisonings are occurring as a result of the fentanyl that's been in the, the heroin. But it's important to note that through all of this opioid epidemic, a couple of things. Um, during times of war and conflict, I've shared this with other members of, of clergy in our community, in times of war and conflict, uh, substance use climbs, it skyrockets. And, and so, you know, some of that is soldiers coming back um, and, and whatnot, but it skyrockets. And so if you, if you can think about this, um, you know, for a, for a senior in high school, they've known nothing but a time of conflict. So our country has been, basically been at war for 17, 18 years. And uh, so you can imagine that, that just communities as, as a whole are struggling, both rural and um, urban. Um, just on a wide scale. Drilling down to the family system, you know, when you think about roles and you think about what roles each person in the family serves, when that person or people are not able to fulfill their role as a caregiver, a nurturer, um, a boundary setter, a comforter, all those things, and they're, they're avoiding of, of providing those things to, say, their children, mm -hmm. that becomes a generational thing. Sure. Um, addiction is very much a generational disease. Um, at one at one point in our local county jail, we had a grand we had grandparents, parents, and the and the offspring, all in the Allen County Jail, all at the same time over the weekend for substance use. Wow. So just just a very um, very telling um, picture of how how much addiction can tear apart a family system. And uh, I don't know if you want to. No, and I think also understanding the idea of trauma. Emotional yeah. trauma yep. that has effects that are long-term, and the understanding of adverse childhood experiences 
it, it's beyond the scope of what we can talk about today, but understanding adverse childhood experiences, the number of exposures people have had have a direct influence on the risk that they have for substance use disorder. I know one of the things when we talked to some clergy earlier this year, they were very interested in understanding what are the risk factors, how can I spot somebody with substance use disorder in my congregation. Frankly, many times they're often pretty good at hiding it um, outwardly, but things of understanding those ACEs, um, things such as growing up in an abusive household, even having growing up in a family where a divorce occurred, death of a parent, the things that, that you might expect are on that list, um, and the more that you have, the more likely you are. It doesn't mean that, that just because you had them means you will have substance use disorder, but it's a useful tool of understanding the risk factors that bring you to that. It's important to it's important to, to expand just a bit more in addition to the trauma, suicide, trauma, and addiction, uh, and depression. Those four things um, they are so common and so core morbid. Um, just a couple of, of stats for you. Um, don't want to uh, bore you too much. Basically, people with uh, alcohol uh, drug use uh, disorder attempt suicide nearly six times more often than people who don't use mood altering substances. Um, over a million people die each year, according to the CDC, from suicide. So, you know, the, the prevalence of, tra of trauma and uh, adverse childhood experiences and uh, addiction just incredibly prevalent. Sure. You know, Steve, to, to the point that Tom just made, there's a series of, of studies, reports that have been out for, I don't know, several years now, a couple years, on what are referred to as deaths of despair and the significant rise of deaths due to overdose, alcoholism, and suicide. And our county health commissioner here in Allen County talks about this all the time and, and will refer to it as we're at epidemic proportions with the deaths of despair. And every time I hear somebody talk about that, I think what an opportunity the church has hmm. to give hope. Yeah. And it's so important that the church is aware of the crisis that we're in so that our messages really can be directed in that way so that we are, we are people giving hope. I was contacted by a, a Lutheran school teacher here in town about six months ago who wanted to share the story that her daughter died by overdose earlier this year. And she told me this, you know, her daughter grew up in the church, and they've been active members, and, and the mom, you know, she's a Lutheran school teacher, and she said, you know, it took me a long time to be able to talk to people in my church about what we were working through. Right. But she said, you won't believe the number of people that when I said what, what had happened, they said, oh my gosh, there's somebody else in our family that's dealing with uh, an addiction or substance use disorder issue or I know somebody that I work with. And, and my point is that this really does talk, I mean, Tom just mentioned this, it does impact so many people's lives mm -hmm. that I do think as a church we are missing the opportunity to address this in a more significant way. Right, you guys all bring up really, really good points uh, and just how staggering the numbers really are and what a mission field it is. I know for me, serving in the inner city, we did a Christmas program for an organization that uh, housed homeless veterans, and we had a full-size gymnasium where in our middle school back in the day it hosted state 
championships. I mean, it was it was a large, large gym. We put out every single table we had. We put out every single chair that we had to uh, put on this Christmas program for our homeless veterans. And you know, obviously, the the vast number of them uh, suffered from mental health and or addiction. Um, and not an empty seat in the house. And for me, it was just extremely eye-opening that just in my city alone that we had that many people, the kind of the horrors of war and how not every wound is visible and physical uh, in terms of, you know, what our veterans are going through. And as you said, then you talk about families and that cyclical generational uh, effect that it has as well. Um, this is a huge mission field. So even though we are talking about missions and outreach and church planting, um, as you guys have all pointed out, uh, there's a huge opportunity for us as the church to be the dispensers of hope to such a massive population of either people suffering themselves or family members um, that just really do not know where to turn for hope or for help. So can you give us a little bit of information on how, how do you offer support resources to families? Well, I think so part of it is if we think about it from a church perspective, that there may be an opportunity, you may be actually the people who are sitting in your pews may not be the people who are in what we call active use. Mm -hmm. They may already be on a different path of their lives. And so you've got mom and dad who have, say, a teenage son or a young adult daughter who are experiencing this. It may be that the wife is there and the husband isn't. And so how are you, so that you're not always dealing with the person who is experiencing the disorder themselves. It's a family member, and the family member then wants to be able to seek treatment, but of course the treatment has to be provided to the person experiencing the condition. And so how do you do that? I will tell you that there is probably a gap in most of the communities your, your leaders are serving in terms of access for services directly for families. You know, um, as you talk about that, and, and also the reference you just made, Steve, um, I'm remembering a story that a young lady told here at uh, a, a meeting of the Board of Directors for the Lutheran Foundation. She has been somebody that we've been working with and we see her as kind of a community advocate. But she is somebody who is recovering from substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. And she tells the story of having grown up in one of our Lutheran churches here in town. Mm -hmm. And as she grew up, uh, you know, maybe it was in high school, they transferred to another Lutheran church in town. And she became addicted to opioids as a result of dental surgery. Oh, yeah. She was not on a path of, yeah. you know, being a heroin user or something like that, but it was addiction that started, but then it started with that opioid use and then escalated after that. Yep. But the thing that stood out for me when she talked to our board is she said she distinctly remembers being at one of our Lutheran churches one year, Christmas Eve, her kids were a part of the Christmas program that was taking place at the church. She left the middle of the service to go out into the parking lot to make a deal with her drug dealer. Oh, wow. And then she went back into church to finish the service. Yeah. That happened in a Lutheran church parking lot on Christmas Eve. Yeah. When she shared that story, that said to me, 
the church has to be aware of what's going on. Absolutely. And I think that's where we, where we go back to. We just have to identify some of the resources that are around us right. and also be open as church leaders to families coming and sharing this is what's going on with somebody in my family, and I don't know where to turn. Right. And, and I don't think the church is, is supposed to, we're not, you know, as pastors, we're not supposed to become um, recovery therapists. That's right. not the point. Right. But to, to, to walk alongside of that person, I mean, there's tremendous shame that, that that family feels that there's a family member going through. We don't need to add to that shame. Right. We just embrace them. We love them. We demonstrate the mercy of Christ to them, but we try to point to some resources and, and the assurance that this is an ongoing relationship that we're having. This isn't just, here's a reference and, you know, I'll check with you in a couple of months, yeah, but yeah. we're going to walk this journey with them. Right, absolutely, whether it's hidden or whether it's in clear view, no, no doubt. Mark, you had a point? Yeah, uh, no, I had a question for uh, uh, Tom, I guess, or Rachel. Um, I mean, you hear pretty commonly that people get addicted and end up with substance abuse because of prescription medication, starting with, you know, you said dental surgery. Star athletes. Yeah. <laughs> Steve has mentioned that to me before that, you know, uh, athletes end up on some sort of uh, opioid. Um, do you have advice for uh, uh, parents or, or just uh, a person in general? When should you try to avoid opioid, opioids if they're prescribed? Or when should you, and first, when should you not? I guess is my question. Let me let me just first say that I'm not a physician. Okay. okay. This <laughs> comment, but my encouragement actually would be to, to review uh, Mayo Clinic submission or the Cleveland Clinic rather. Um, they have a nice uh, nice document that lists out medications to avoid, uh, especially if it's a person with a known substance use disorder, mm -hmm. um, to avoid when seeking medical care. Um, a lot of physicians would say that um, prescription strength ibuprofen is just as effective as a narcotic in terms of treating pain. So hmm. in terms of, I'm, I'm not uh, the proper person to say don't take opiates, but I am going to tell you that someone who has, um, has an addiction or has a substance use disorder, and it's, a, it's important to state this too, they are not the addiction, right? They are trying to recover from the addiction. So in an effort to do that, they need to take precautions. And, and so when, when seeking out things like a dental procedure for someone with a substance use disorder, they are well, they are well advised to let their dentist know, um, I have an addiction, please don't give me X, Y, or Z drugs. And again, the Cleveland Clinic has a very nice resource for that. And for some, for family members who are thinking, gosh, uh, my kid is going to have, my 17-year-old is going to have his wisdom teeth taken out, how do I handle this? What we're seeing, actually, is the number of prescriptions for opioids going down. Right. Um, so you are less likely to be given a 60-day supply of an opioid prescription following a dental procedure. So also, some states have different ways of doing it so that you can, if they give you a 30-day prescription, you may only have five days filled um, so that that way you don't end up with it in your house. Yeah. So it's really, I think, on the patient and the family members to discuss how what makes the best choice for them and un educate themselves before they walk in a little bit, but then also say, look, I'm really interested in using as little of this as possible. We're the, the work that we've done here has shown that opioids do have an appropriate place. We're not advocating that they get removed entirely 
from the, the marketplace. They just have a very limited use for what they're good at. And, so I mean, it's important. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, a man in my parish, she had some sort of knee surgery. I think it was knee replacement. And, you know, he was doing well showing up in church. And then he was gone for a few weeks. And then when he came back, he said, yeah, I was getting addicted oh, yeah. to the uh, to the opioids. And, and they caught it early and, and all, but. It sure. just you don't expect that from from sure. a nice old man in your parish. You know, so. <laughs> no doubt. So we're kind of down to the the last uh, section for our discussion. Can you all talk to us a little bit about our, our opportunities for community impact? Um, yeah, actually, uh, I would like to start, and you know, I think that it's it's all well and good to um, to look at addiction and, and in our heads. Um, you know, we talked about the death of despair a little bit, mm-hmm. and. Generally, that person is in their, their low 40s, uh, generally employed, generally, I think, generally Caucasian, generally of relative good income, um, and at, at face value, things look pretty decent. I think that's, that's important to understand, but one of the things that I wanted to just make sure we touch on is the youth. Um, indicators for um, potential risks, and, and so we talked about the trauma. The other thing is the depression. If you've seen signs, symptoms of depression, um, that's a that's a risk factor um, that can tr- contribute to things. The one thing I want to make sure that I do get out is that while we're mentioning opiates, we still need to be cognizant of the fact that alcohol is still your number one killer, and that the marijuana smoked today is not the marijuana smoked in the 60s and 70s. Okay. The purity of marijuana today is much much more potent in addition to the fact that you really don't know what's in that marijuana. The other thing that I want to make sure is we talk about synthetic cannabis, they're very much marketed to youth. And so the synthetic cannabis is, is a very, very dangerous drug um, that can lead to some pretty significant uh, quasi-pseudo-psychotic uh, symptoms. Okay. So um, just want to make sure I said that. Okay, sure. So um, one of the things that I think the church has the opportunity to take the initiative with in many communities, Steve, is uh, to gather together resources from a variety of different disciplines, healthcare, law enforcement, um, the faith community, medical community, mental health community, and have some collaborative conversations about what are the issues that we're facing, what, what can be done in this community to turn some things around, make a difference. The Lutheran Foundation launched an initiative a year and a half ago, two years years ago, ago. that we are calling FATOS, and it stands for, it's an acronym that stands for Fort Wayne Allen County Task Force on Opioid Strategic Planning. Hmm. And Rachel led that initiative for us. So just share a little word about that. Sure. So that one, we've looked at four different things. We brought an interdisciplinary group together of more than 50 people by the end of this. And we looked at it from the areas of prevention. How do we keep people from using? And we looked at it primarily with opioids, but again, looking at it a little broader than that. Intervention. So if we recognize there's a problem, how do we connect people to services? How do we go from recognizing a problem to taking action? Then we looked at treatment and recovery, those clinical services and that wraparound care that's helping to create a holistic person at the end of this. And then lastly, law enforcement. What's interesting, I think, is that depending on what your community's approach is, 
you're going to see law enforcement and criminal, the criminal justice system moving away from a system of lock them up and throw away the key to seeing the criminal justice system as an entry point to treatment and recovery services. It's going to be unique to the jurisdiction, so depending on where you're living, you may be seeing varying degrees of that. There may be services in your jail, there may be outpatient treatment services that are part of the condition of release, things like that. But really, the opportunity to partner with law enforcement should not be overlooked, especially if you have a treatment-minded recovery uh, community. And from that FATOS initiative, there were, Rachel, remind me, like 96 recommendations yeah, somewhere between that 70 came, and 90. came out of that. And some of them did uh, dovetail or have implications for the faith community, and we've done some follow-up with that. And she's done some further. We have quarterly meetings that reconvene the people that were initially involved as well as bring some uh, presenters in to talk about that. So it's an ongoing conversation that's happening. I, I see that as simply it's a model that could be used in other communities. And I, I again, the, the Lutheran Foundation is the one that really took the initiative with this, but I, I see the church could be the initiator in any other community. Great. Very good. So plenty of opportunities for the faith-based organizations um, to have an impact. And again, when the Surgeon General is calling upon us uh, to say, you, you have an important place, and, and then there are the times where there are gaps that certainly faith-based organizations can play a lead role. And as you said, too, the, the collaboration and uh, helping to, to bring people together um, to be a, a powerful force for good, um, no doubt. I did want to... And one other opportunity, yes. one other opportunity for, the, for the church is also to walk alongside organizations that are already doing this work. Absolutely. So instead of, is, is, do you have some recovery homes, recovery residences, mm-hmm. especially many of them are faith-based, so an opportunity for you to work with them. So sometimes it's as simple as bringing them a meal on Thursday nights. Other times it might be leading a Bible study or a prayer group, an opportunity. So don't, as a church, feel like you have to invent the whole system to go forward. Good work is already happening. Figure out who you align with and see how you can help them on that mission. Sometimes it might be straight-up cash donations. It's a variety of things that they need rather than thinking that you need to solve the problem yourself. Right, absolutely. That is a very good point. And I think for us as the church, too, it's it's a matter of um, truly caring. Um, and, and if I was just to use the worst-case scenario, I was at the uh, Minneapolis with our, you know, tens of thousands of youth at our national youth gathering, and I was asked to uh, present something on, on a, I did an immersion as a homeless event uh, where we went kind of undercover as being uh, folks that were staying in a homeless encampment with people from a homeless ministry in the inner city where I had worked. And I could tell that a lot of the youth that were there um, in Minneapolis, in the city, surrounded by people suffering from addiction and from homelessness and from mental health issues, they just weren't comfortable. They didn't really want to engage Uh, with people. And so one of the examples that I had used was from my own congregation. And we had a a Lutheran school that went from uh, preschool all the way up to eighth grade uh, before I got there. And one of my members had said, 
Pastor, I was downtown, I was at a ball game, and I couldn't believe what I saw. One of my former classmates went all through the Lutheran education program, was living on the streets, and was obviously dealing with an addiction. And so I I found this individual, I offered to help as much as I could. But again, when I thought of those youth, when I thought of all the people that would have passed by him uh, down there in the by the ballpark and might have seen him as being weak and worthless, uncomfortable to be around, maybe even less than human than they are. One of the things that I wanted to make sure that I really got across to our youth was that this person that was there was someone's son. I mean, I knew his mom. I knew the torment that his dad went through because their son was living uh, through this addiction and they felt so helpless. I knew that this was someone's friend because they called me and they begged me uh, to go find a police officer until we could finally track down uh, this individual. I, I knew that this was someone that Christ had died for and not only that, that this person um, was raised in, in our church. And so I wanted to get across this point that this is not just another nameless stranger. This person had a baptismal name, and that baptismal name was Aaron, and that God loved Aaron. And at the end of the day, you know, when we do want to help, it's not as much about what we have done. It's about how have we loved. You know, at the end of the day, when we talk about serving those who are suffering from addiction, it is seeing in them our own humanity. It is recognizing them as our fellow man. It is knowing that this isn't just some nameless stranger, but they are loved by God and he knows their name. And so for all of our listeners who might think, you know, what does addiction really have to do with the mission of the church? It absolutely does. Because unfortunately, there is a huge mission field of people who are hopeless, but they need this hope that the church can give. And at the end of the day, it won't be as much about what we have done. At the end of the day, it will be about how have we loved them? How have we showed them their human dignity? How have we looked upon them and seen our own human frailties that each and every one of us have, and yet that God would call us by our name as his child? So that would be kind of my my final point for our discussion uh, as we talk about this mission field that is throughout our country that unfortunately is at epidemic proportions and unfortunately has given us such a dark chasm of hopelessness that we as the church need to step up and we need to find our place in the middle of this so that we can serve our brothers in love and our sisters in need to not uh, take away their dignity or to add to the stigma, but to give them true peace and comfort and hope for the future. So thank you to all of our listeners for our Mission Field USA podcast. And please, please, please consider how you can reach the least and the lost among you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mission Field USA podcast for church planting. Visit lcms.org slash church planting for other resources and information to share your ideas and to contact us. The Mission Field USA podcast is a production of the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, in partnership with KFUO Radio. The Lord be with you.